Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. How many of you guys know what the vision or the mission of Launch Point Church is? Raise your hand. That should be everybody. We say it literally every Sunday before we leave because I want you to know. Because you can't be something you don't know what it would you if you're not if you're not aware of what you're called to be, then you can't be that thing. And so our mission statement, where we're going, where we believe God is calling us to go, what God called us to Lebanon to do is on the back wall of our building. It says, we exist to be a place where people can come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. This is our goal, to create opportunity for everyone to come to know God. This is our overarching thing, to know God. If we ever evolve ourselves in anything that doesn't somehow fall under the umbrella of knowing God, then we're not involved in it. You want to ask me how, how I determine what we're going to be involved in and what we're not going to be involved in? I let the mission statement speak for us. That's why it exists. Tell me what you want to do, why you want to do it, and tell me first how it's going to be pre-people into a knowing understanding of who God is. If you can do that, we'll discuss it. If you can't do that, if it's just a pet project you want to do, then we're not going to do it. Because this is the most important thing. This is why church exists. This is why the body of Christ exists, to bring people to a knowing understanding and revelation of the fact that God loves them enough to have sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for them. So now that that rubs some folks some wrong ways because there are homeless ministries, there are food ministries, there are a lot of these social ministries out here or social things out here that have no intent to proclaim the gospel, have no intent to bring people to an understanding of Jesus. And when somebody says, hey, I want to get involved in this because they're loving people well, you're not loving people well if you don't get them to a place where they know who Jesus is. You're just filling a physical need. You're not meeting an eternal need. And so that answer is no, because our mission statement starts with knowing God. And as that knowing God bucket fills it should overflow into these other three smaller buckets, which is when we know God, we find freedom. Because in the presence of God and under the anointing, which is the presence of God, chains are broken. Issues are destroyed. Things standing between you and your relationship with God and other people are ruined. We begin then to discover our purpose, what God created us to be. This is the second of the smaller buckets. So as I find freedom, I start to realize this is what God's actually called me to. And within my calling, I'm able to make a difference. And I'm not talking about a simple difference. I'm not talking about picking up trash off the street, although that's probably a good thing. I mean an eternal difference in the lives of people. Because I'm sharing them with them that which I know, that Jesus died to give them eternal life. And because of that, our mission statement is cyclic, which means 
They come to know God. They find freedom, discover their purpose, make a difference, and the only difference they can make is cause other people to come to a place where they know God too and start the process. So people ask me, when are we going to get a new mission statement? We're never getting a new mission statement. This is what we're going to do until I die. If you want a new mission statement, find a new pastor. This is what God called us to do. And in fact, I think I'm as convicted that this is what the church should be doing, that if, if we decide to stop doing this, not only find another pastor, but find another Bible, because that's what this Bible tells us to do. So that's our mission statement. But there's a difference between a mission statement and a philosophy of ministry. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. A mission statement will tell you where you're going. A philosophy of ministry will talk about the attitude you take in getting to where you're going. That's good. And so we have an attitude at Launch Point Church. <laughs> and that's a double-edged sword, but it's true. <laughs> we have a way in which we accomplish our mission statement. Matthew, you got your Launch Point shirt on today. Take, take, take that upper shirt off. Stand up here. Come up here. This is our outreach T-shirt. Turn around there where they can see it. All right. Now, on the back of this, you're going to see our philosophy of ministry. Love them, serve them, speak. I know, right? They're like Vanna White up here. Love them, serve them, and speak kindly to them. This is the way our attitude towards our accomplishment of that mission statement. Amen? Thanks, brother. You look good doing it, too. All right. So that's what I'm going to spend the next three weeks talking to you about, is our philosophy of ministry, our attitude, the means by which we accomplish that. And I'm going to start that today with love them. And I'm going to start that with a story I, when I start, first started feeling this unction to plant the church, and some of you have heard this, and it's not going to hurt you to hear it again. Every now and then, you got to revisit your history. When I first started thinking about planting the church, my pastor told me, he said, you need a mission statement. I said, okay. We figured out a mission statement. Got it done. He said, now you need a philosophy of ministry. I said, what's that? And he explained it to me much like I just explained it to you. And he said, do you need to base all of those things in Scripture? And so I started praying, God, I need a philosophy of ministry that is both honoring to you and glorifying to the name of your son, Jesus, that it shows people how to accomplish that which you've called us to do. And he gave me that in 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 12, I'm not going to teach out of 1 Kings. This is just the introduction. I'll get to where we're teaching in just a moment. In 1 Kings chapter 12, King Rehoboam is about to assume the throne of his father Solomon. And so everybody from Israel came around, including Jeroboam, who was his brother. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, so he's about, to, he's about to be crowned king, as it were, about to be proclaimed king. And the people, Jeroboam, all came to him and made this request of him. They said, your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he has put on us, and we will serve you. 
This is what they said. Man, our life is tough. The world's upside down. We're struggling. We're hurting. And if you can alleviate this pain in us, we will serve you all the days of our life. Do you know this is the reason people come to church primarily? Because their life is hard. Because they've heard that there's a rumor of hope here. And they, they're coming here. They, they shadow the door of this church or whatever church they go to with the hope that what they heard about the hope here is true. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but screams at us in our pain. And that's the reason people come to church. It's the reason why people stand in front of Rehoboam and say, if you'll just make our life easier, show me how that works. And Rehoboam, being a young man, made a wise decision initially. He said, he said what I'm going to do is I want you to go away for three days. I'm going to seek the counsel of the elders of Israel and ask them what I should do on your behalf. And this is the advice that the elders gave him. If you will be a servant to this people today, and if you will serve them and grant them their petition, which is to love them, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Essentially, the elders of Israel said, if you'll love them, if you'll serve them, if you'll speak kindly to them, they'll serve the king all the days of their life. We don't want them to serve us, but we do want them to serve the king all the days of their life. Sadly, though, Rehoboam didn't take that advice. He's a young man. He did young man stuff. He then went and talked to his friends. And I'm going to summarize. He says, what do you guys think I should do? Do you know when you don't get the answer that you want, you go talk to somebody that agrees with you? And they said, he said, what do you guys think I should do? The people that he grew up with. They said, they think it's hard now. Make it harder on them. Tax them more greatly. Put a heavier yoke on them. Let them know who's in charge. They need to know who's in charge. And so that's what he did. And from that point forward, the nation of Israel was split in two pieces, north and south, because of that bad decision. Those people said, I'm not following you. And it, they, they were split and continued to be split from this time to 1967 when they were once again unified. Let me tell you what happens when people don't love, serve, and speak kindly to other people. The church is split. The kingdom of God is split. Fracture happens. Hurt happens. Pain happens. There's disruption that never should exist. And it all started because someone or someones decided that loving them, serving them, speaking kindly to them wasn't good enough, wasn't enough. That instead they needed to push their authority on them. But let me tell you, authority without love is like a dull chisel. Better suited for crushing than crafting. Our job is to love them. Amen? Now, let's talk about how and why. In 1 John, John, the beloved, as you can imagine, wrote about love all the time. And 
his first first John, he speaks of love in four different places in the chapters, in the uh, four chapters, five chapters that are in his letter. But this particular section I'm going to read from and teach from today is seven, chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. But this, the love of God, is manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Sounds a lot like Romans 5, 8, right? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Amen. So I want to talk to you about love. And I'm not talking to you about talking about love. I'm not talking to you about thinking about love. I'm talking to you about loving because 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Yeah. You talk about love all day long. If you ain't putting your hand to the plow, you're not loving. And so in this text, we're told three things. I'm going to use verse 7 as the thesis statement to teach through 12 because I think it verse 7 in three parts encapsulates what he's explaining through 12. And so I'm going to break this verse down and explain it in the other texts. Number one, the first thing we have is a directive to love them. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. It doesn't say love one another if you want to. Love one another if it's convenient. Love one another if you don't have anything else to do. Let us love them or one another. Let us love one another. What's the problem with that? The world's forgotten how to love because the world largely has forgotten God. It dis it's disgusting. It should disgust us to see the lack of love in the world. And from time to time, I'm just going to be honest with you, it should disgust us that to see sometimes the lack of love in us. Have you guys ever seen the show Seinfeld back in the 90s? Did you see the last one? The last Seinfeld show, it's about these narcissist people in New York who just don't really care about anyone or anything. And in the very last episode, they watch somebody getting carjacked and they end up getting charged with criminal negligence because they didn't help and get put in prison. That's the world we live in. That was funny in the 90s, but that's the world we live in now. We see people hurting and struggling and being in pain, and we don't do anything about it. In fact, we do something worse than nothing. We watch someone getting beat up on the street, some guy beating his wife. We see somebody's house on fire. We see somebody drowning. We see any number of horrible things happen, and what do we do? We videotape it, and then we hashtag it. 
hoping that it'll become viral on social media. That's not love. That's the opposite of love. That's a, dis that's a disgusting display of humanity. In this town, just a few weeks ago, maybe a month and a half ago, was Child Sex Trafficking Awareness Month. And you could go to the courthouse and you could go into the mayor's office and you could get a jar. You, they give it to you. It's got red powder in it. And you could take it outside and you could kind of spread that powder through the cracks in the concrete as a remembrance of those who have been child trafficked. And then you get your picture taken with the mayor and put in the newspaper. What did this do? What did this do except for elevate you, make you feel good about you, but it accomplished nothing? You know why? Because our love ain't right. We have to put our hand to something. We can't just say we love and not love. We can't put a hashtag on something and say we care. We're the most socially conscious, yet socially unaware, provoked people ever in the history of our nation right now. We see it and don't do anything about it. Why? Because our love ain't right. But it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. It says, let us love one another. And you're all, man. He ain't talking to me. He is talking to you. John is talking to you. By the power of the Holy Spirit is talking to you. You know how I know? Because he starts this text with beloved. You know what beloved means in the scripture? It's a, it's a word in the New Testament exclusively intended to speak of Christian love. Only the love that's afforded a Christian, that's capable of being demonstrated as a Christian, an affection birthed in the community of Christ. So when he starts with beloved, he might as well write your name. He's saying you, you're responsible to love. You can't shirk your responsibility. You have to do it. You have to move. You have to act. You have to see them. You have to walk towards them. You have to love them. It's a directive we've been given. Sadly, though, we can't give what we don't have. Which is the condition at some point all of us were in. We didn't have love, couldn't give love, but God is love. Did you hear that? The Bible says God is love. It doesn't mean that, that God somehow contains love or that most of God is loving, it means that everything God is as his very essence is the definition of love. If you ever say something or hear somebody say something like, that, that's not true, my God would never do that, and it's in contradiction to this word, that's blasphemous. Because God is love. And if God did it, it has to be love. Now, that doesn't make any sense. He told him to kill a whole generation of people. You know why? Because he loved. 
He loved the people that belonged to him enough to ensure that those people who he knew because he is in all places at all times wouldn't end up destroying the people that he loved, which they accomplished several times. Well, I don't understand. What about sickness? Sickness is God's love for you. Now, that, that, that just rolls all over Pentecostal theology. Storms in your life. God wants, I have had theologian after theologian after theologian say, God won't send a storm in your life. I want you to ask Jonah about that when you get to heaven. Because he sent that storm in his life. You know why? Because he loved him. He sent the storm in his life because it caused him to be swallowed by a fish where he finally not only got saved by the fish, but came back to the Lord in the fish and was delivered to his purpose by the fish. That's the love of God in action, even when it seems like what's happening to us is something bad. That's why the Romans 8.28 promise is so true and so important. And I'm going to read it to you. Sometimes I've got verses memorized. Sometimes I just, even though I have them memorized, I want you to see me read from the Bible because you need to read from your Bible. It says, and we know that God causes, everybody says causes, all things to work together to good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Can I ask you a question? Do you love God? Do you believe that he has a calling for your life? Yes. Then no matter what's happening in your life, God is going to work it out for your good. But you don't understand what I've been through. I don't understand what you've been through, but I don't have an eternal perspective on your life. God does. And the Bible says that he is love. Ooh, that's good preaching right there. Number two. Not only do we have a directive to love, we have a source for love. The second part of seven says, for love is from God. You know what that means? That means that he's the one that gave it. He's the source of it. It comes from him. He initiated it. He provoked it. If you have anything loving in your life, anything good, anything perfect comes from the Father. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It comes from the Father because he is good and he is love. He is the source of our love, and that love is provisional. It doesn't have to make sense to you. You just have to have faith in the fact that it's true. That's the reason why I preach to you. Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word of God. If I thought me preaching to you wouldn't do you any good, verbalizing the word to you wouldn't do you any good, I'd tell you to go home. I have other stuff to do. I had a pretty good career before I quit that, started doing this. But I believe that the hearts of men are provoked by the spirit of God upon their faith being built by the word of God. And so should you. God is the source of the love that you have and the love that you should carry. And the praise God, that source is provisional. It's so provisional, in fact, that it met every need that you have because he loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If God is our source, then that source provided, 
provision. That provision is Jesus. Verses 9 and 10, For this is the love of God, which was manifested in us, that God had sent his only begotten son into the world so that he might, so we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. The propitiation, a big word for appeasement. I'll get to that in a second. He's the provision of our love so that we might, of his love so that we might live through him by a confession of faith in the grace that he extends according to Romans, or correction, Ephesians 2 verse 8. What does that mean? That means I have to have faith that Jesus came down from heaven, that Jesus walked the earth. Jesus was sinless while walking the earth. Jesus, because of his love for us, was tempted every way imaginable to men and didn't fail so that he could be ultimately your perfect sacrifice, our perfect sacrifice, my perfect sacrifice. God knew you couldn't do it on your own, so he sent Jesus to live a perfect life, unblemished, unscarred, undefiled, so that we could have a perfect sacrifice so he could be the substitution for us. And that substitution happens as he crawls upon the cross. But before that, as he allows himself, and I say allows himself because if you don't think the Son of God had the power of God, then you're crazy. He allowed himself to be spat upon, punched, kicked, thorns placed in his forehead. The, the, the most horrible thing, and it's not the most horrible thing, but in my mind, had a purple robe laid over those scars, allowed to dry and then ripped back off carried that rough timber up to the cross of Calvary, nailed to it, speared, and died upon that cross, shedding his own blood so that you might have eternal life. That's the provision that God gave us so that we might be redeemed. So that we might be bought back because we gave ourselves away. We sold ourselves into slavery. But you know what? God still expects us to walk in slavery. Because of the grace we've been extended, we are to walk in the, as slaves to righteousness. But he bought us back from the kingdom of darkness into his own kingdom. You know how he did that? By the shedding of his own blood. He forgave us, justified us by the shedding of his own blood because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, none, not any. All the sin that you've ever committed, would you'd still carry if Jesus' blood hadn't completely washed it off of you and chiseled it out of you. But he didn't just redeem you. He promises to spend eternity with you. You want to know why he did that? That's the question, right? Why would God do such a thing? He could have just made more of us. He could have said, forget, he had artistic rights. He could have just said, I made that, I'm going to destroy it. I don't like the way it looks. I don't like the way it acts. I don't like the way it looks in my living room. I'm going to destroy it. But he didn't. You know why? 
because he loves you. Because his love provoked action. And if your love isn't provoking action, you don't know God. That's hard. That's what the Bible says. If you don't know love, you don't know God. But to know love isn't just to intellectually know love. To know love is to show love. Because God knows love, but God showed love. Christ showed love. And if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we have to walk according to the word as Christ walked. Let us be people who love. But not only is God our source, and not only did that source give us provision, that source gave us empowerment. What? The Bible says in this text I read you, God's love is manifested in us. You know what that means? Manifested in us. That means that he sent his Holy Spirit to us. God sent Jesus. Jesus went back up to heaven, and the Holy Spirit was sent. And now the Spirit of God, the Spirit of love, the God that is, that's good, the God that is love lives in you. What is your excuse? You want to know how I can confidently say, besides the fact that it's in this word, that if you don't love well, you don't know God? Because God, if you know God, lives in you, and you're going to do according to what the Spirit tells you to do. Now, that may not look perfect right now, because I'll tell you, the day after I got saved, my love wasn't perfect. But here, 16 years later, it's more perfect than it was then. 16 years from now, it's going to be more perfect than it is now. And I'm going to constantly move towards a perfected love. That's what this verse says, that it is perfected in us. My love, our love should be perfected in us. Amen? That's what God calls us to. To be empowered for love. Have eyes to see them. Which means we have an internal motivator to see them. When was the last time, and this is where I'm going to get just kind of in your face for a minute. When was the last time you saw somebody in need and moved on their behalf? I'm, I've told you, I, I'm convinced that most of the ministry that I do, most of the ministry that you do, no one else ever hears about. Or you're doing it wrong. Now, there's stuff we do cumulatively, and I, I put on Facebook to celebrate the church, to make sure people know that we're here for a purpose should they need a, a place of hope. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what do you do individually? How much margin are you creating in your calendar to love people? I don't normally tell stuff, but it's more often than not, I'm outside of this office than I am inside this office. Man, it's comfortable in my office. I got a nice chair, air conditioning, I can shut my door, nobody bothers me. I can lock the door, nobody bothers me. But you know what I'm not doing? I'm not loving anybody. And so I write my sermons in a coffee shop. Because in that coffee shop, somebody who may not know God, but knows I'm reading a Bible, might ask about my Bible. Or somebody who does know God may come with a problem and need someone to love them and pray with them and care for them. You have to be in the community to see the community. Sometimes I walk through Walmart for no other reason than just to see people's face. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you to do this. It's going to be uncomfortable for you. Walk through Walmart. First time you see somebody looking at the floor when they walk past you, ask, ask them how they're doing. Hey, how you doing? You know what they're going to say? 
good, but they're going to keep on walking. But they're not good. You know why I know they're not good? Because they're looking at the floor. And so stop and see them and say, I'm sorry, I don't want to bother you, but are you? Are you okay? Nine times out of ten, that person will stop dead in their tracks and have a conversation with you about what they're, what's going on in their life. And you get an opportunity to love them because you saw them. And in seeing them, you move towards them. And in moving towards them, you open your hand to them. That's what God did for us. Amen? Oh, that sounds awful inconvenient. It probably is going to be. It is for me. I'll open up one of these tables, like we have the little pop-up white tables we use for connect groups. Not all the time, five or six times a year. And I go put it out there next to the grass. And I do my studying out there, and I put a sign in the grass that says, Need prayer? Stop. And I just sit there and do my own work. You'd be surprised the number of people that just stop and get prayer. But you got to make yourself available to those things. That's so good. Finally, this. The Bible says that the love is perfected in us. In verse 12, God abides in us. And as he abides in us, as we release more of ourselves to him, his love is perfected in us. So, we have to grow in our love for them. I, I love this. I, I, well, it's one of the things I love to hate, I'll be honest with you. The greatest commandment, all of us are familiar with it. Leviticus starts it, 1918. It says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of people, but you should love your neighbor as yourself. It was 1,400 years or so before Jesus said this, reiterated that same fact. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, I can do that. I can love my neighbor as myself. But Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to increase your expectations. And in Matthew 43, 45, he says this, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You, you have heard it said, you shall love your enemy, your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. What? This is a, this is a, this is a perfection. Not just love your neighbor. I want you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Man, that's taking it up a notch. That's an uncomfortable notch. Would you agree that's an uncomfortable notch? But then he goes on in 1 John 13 and 14. John says, a new commandment I give to you, not new in, not new in practice, but in principle. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one, one another. What? So you want me to love my neighbor? That my gay neighbor? My, my immigrant neighbor? You, you want me to love my 
Muslim neighbor? You want me to love my northern neighbor? He says, yes, but I don't only want you to love them no matter what they look like, what they act like, because you're being a reflection of me. Even when they persecute you, I want you to pray for them. But not only do I want you to pray for them when they persecute you, I want you to love them like Jesus loves them. You know how Jesus loves? Sacrificially. He's give them a love that costs you something. Give them a love that's going to make you uncomfortable. I learned a long time ago, there is no love that doesn't cost you something. None. It might even be a little puppy dog love. It's going to cost you something. But the greatest love that ever existed, the love of Jesus Christ that lives in you by the Holy Spirit, ought to cost you everything. My prayer, my hope, my big ask is that you allow love to cost you everything because it costs the one who died for you everything. Amen? Let's pray.